So please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 18. We continue our study in the book of Isaiah. We'll be, I'll be introducing the text from Genesis chapter 9 and 10 if you wanted to go ahead and hold a place there as well. So Isaiah chapter 18, before we go to the text, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for His help with it. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to Your Word today, we pray that You would help us because we are in desperate need of help when it comes to Your truth because we like to invent our own truth and then we like to mingle it with the actual truth. And so, Lord, please keep us from that. Our hearts easily wander off into myth. We pray that you would keep us on the straight and narrow, that you would show us our sin, that you would show us the truth and how we ought to live. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So, as I read through this, and as I've read through all of these different nations, what's been fascinating to me is to go kind of see where these nations began. I think the Bible really teaches us about most of the nations that we read about. It's kind of like these uh, Marvel movies that have came out, you know, in all the Marvel movies, they kind of have this origin story, and if you understand the origins, you kind of get the whole thing, and you kind of get some of their motivations, and so I think it's important to see that even with the nations of the world. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 9. I had a professor once tell me that you everything you needed to know was in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. I think I see that more and more. Genesis chapter 9, we'll start at verse 18. And just to give you a little bit of a context, the flood has happened and the Noah and his family have come out safe from the flood. And here they are after that event. And I'm going to read here kind of one of the very first things that happens to his family, which isn't a good thing. Verse 18. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these people the whole earth dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from from his wine and knew that his young he knew what his youngest son had done to him, and he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years, and all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. So turn with me forward to verse 6 of chapter 10. And I'm not going to read all these names, but I do want to talk about some of them. And the sons of Ham. Now, Ham was just cursed 
by his father. One of those sons is named Canaan. You probably remember Canaan from such features as, you know, the entire Old Testament when Israel had trouble with Canaan. I mean, it's pretty much what the Old Testament is about. But there are some other nations that Israel had trouble with and listen to their names. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabbath, Ramah, and Sabdika. And it goes forward. And you can see there, even down as you get to the bottom, Egypt had a son. One of them was named Cashalam, from whom the Philistines came. It might be easy to say that uh, the sons of Ham caused the sons of Shem, who are the Israelites or the Shemites, which is where we get that Semitism from today, some problems. It may be easy to suggest that. Today in our text from Isaiah chapter 18, we're going to deal with one of Ham's sons, Cush, or his people, the Cushites. Ham and his people settled in Africa and pretty much proliferated the entire continent. Today, we're going to see that the Lord has a particular message for the people of Cush. But really, it's a message for the entire world. And we're going to see that in our text. As we get into this passage, we're going to see our own world laid bare before us. Though the region of the Cushites is the focal point, the Lord uses this as an opportunity, to, again, to address the entire world, even those people that Israel has never heard of. Don't forget that there are lots of nations in existence at this point that Israel has really never dealt with, Cush being one of them. They were close, but they didn't have a lot of dealings with one another, not like they did with Egypt and the Philistines and others. It shows us that though God's judgment is particular against sin, and sinful people, it is against the sins of the entire world. Not just dealing in this small little place there in Israel. Every nation, every individual must give account to him one day. I think it shows us our own responsibility as well. Because every nation of the world will one day bow down to the king of kings. Whether it be on good terms or bad terms, they will all bow down to him one day and we'll see that in our text today as christians we have a god-given role and that role is to proclaim the one way to make sure the terms between god and man are actually good terms and that is the gospel of jesus christ that is the message that we have that is the message that we're going to see in our text today so as we look at it i want to consider three main ideas first the emissaries from Cush, the reply of god and then the future of the nations. And so with that, let's look at Isaiah chapter 18, starting at verse 1. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's Word. Isaiah 18, starting at verse 1. Ah, the land of whirring wings that is beyond the rivers of Cush, which sends ambassadors by the sea in vessels of papyrus on the waters. Go, you swift messengers, to a nation tall and smooth, to a people feared near and far, a nation mighty and conquering, whose land the rivers divide. All you inhabitants of the world who dwell on the earth, when a signal is raised on the mountains, look. When a trumpet is blown, hear. For thus the Lord said to me, I will quietly look from my dwelling. 
like clear heat in sunshine, like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest. For before the harvest, when the blossom is over and the flower becomes a ripening grape, he cuts off the shoots with the pruning hooks and spreads the branches. He lops off and clears away. They shall all be left to the birds of prey of the mountains and to the beasts of the earth. And the birds of prey will summer on them and the beasts of the earth will winter on them. At that time, tribute will be brought to the Lord of hosts from all from from a people tall and smooth, from a people feared near and far, a nation mighty and conquering, whose land the rivers divide, to Mount Zion, the place of the name of the Lord of hosts. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So, a short passage concerning this nation, and really. As you can see from the text, it's more of a message to the nations of the world, but Cush kind of being the representative of that. The text calls them a land of whirring wings, which is an interesting um, title. The land um, of the river Cush, or the beyond the river Cush, today is known as Sudan, but mostly is known as Ethiopia. Maybe you're... Uh, version of the scriptures actually has Ethiopia there. So this is where these Ethiopians would come from. The Hebrew word for that area is actually Cush, and so that's this transliteration that we see. And it really refers to that whole area south of Egypt, right along the Nile River. We can't really underestimate the way that the Nile provides for the people in this area, particularly in this time in history, even today, really. Almost every place you look gives a different answer for where is Cush. But the general idea is the same. This whole area south of Egypt. Cush, again, was the eldest son of Ham, which was what we read. Moses' wife, Zipporah, was actually a Cushite woman as well. Some translations, again, like I said, go ahead and say Ethiopia. The word Ethiopia is actually a Greek word which literally means burnt face, which alludes to the color of the skin of the people there. Sometimes the people in this region are known as Nubians, and you've probably heard of the Nubian dynasty and and that sort of thing. And this comes from the Egyptian word, which means gold, again, alluding to their skin color. Nubian people, you can read a lot about them. It's a pretty fascinating time in history and some of their uh, contributions. They're largely known for their striking features and for their beauty, even today. In the time of Isaiah, the Cushites, so this Cushite empire, was reaching a peak for their own civilization. They had actually conquered Egypt or partially conquered Egypt at the time and kind of ushered in their own Egyptian dynasty called the Nubian dynasty. And it was around for about 100 years until Assyria came in and and, you know, did the Assyrian thing and wiped them out. Like the other nations around them, they knew this Assyrian thing was coming. And so they were seeking alliances from little old Judah, as it were. It's funny that all of the nations want Judah to help them, and Judah's kind of the smallest thing there. That turmoil was literally bred into them. This turmoil that they're constantly in with all of the nations surrounding them surrounding them think about what we just read from 
Genesis chapter 9 and 10. It was, it's a part of their beginning. It's who they are. The, sin, the sinful origin, the continued acts that they would do. I think more than anything, this underlies the fact that the sin that we have isn't a mere choice that we make. It is who we are without Christ. It is the teaching of Scripture that man is lost in his nature, not just by the choices that he makes, but because he is born, he's lost. Man is always at war with himself and cannot stop it. It's part of his nature. Just read. There are always people at war with one another. The world tells us that if we could just stop the fighting, that there would be peace. What does Scripture tell us? There is no peace outside of Jesus Christ. And we need to understand that. The choices of man will, conti- will only be evil continually. And we see that here in this text. First point is the emissaries from Cush, verses 1 and 2. The land of warring wings that is beyond the rivers of Cush, which sends ambassadors by the sea in vessels of papyrus on the waters. Go, ye swift messengers, to a nation tall and smooth, to a people feared near and far, a nation mighty and conquering, whose land divides, or whose land the rivers divide. A lot of ink is spilled over these two verses. It's incredible to me what the commentators really get stuck on. This idea of what does it mean, whirring wings? It could probably mean, well, this part of the uh, world is known for its insect population, locusts and the such, and they make this whirring sound. And as we heard a couple years ago when the uh, cicadas came out to uh, let us know they existed. And so... It's this whirring kind of sound, and so maybe that's it. Or it could maybe mean the sails on the ships, because Ethiopia at this particular time in their history was known for their navy, and we see this with the allusion to the ships here in the text. And a lot of times in history, the wings of a ship are known as its sails, and that's kind of a thing. And so maybe that's it. We really don't know what it means. It could be both. Honestly, it's obviously an allusion to this nation, something about them. The main idea here is that these emissaries or these ambassadors from Cush were sent to Judah with a message. Sent there seeking an alliance against Assyria so that they could somehow survive the Assyrian onslaught. Ethiopia was a strong civilization in its own right, but they knew that they couldn't match up with Assyria. No one was able to do that outside of the Lord's own intervention, which is the only reason Judah survived. And so now, there's this tiny little nation, Judah, surrounded by all these larger nations and the sea on one side, and they're seeking help from them. And like all the nations before them, Ethiopia is given one answer. No, they're not going to help. Judah is not going to help them. A few other things before we move on. Notice how Isaiah categorizes this people. He tells these ambassadors to return to a nation tall and smooth. That's an interesting way to describe people. Speaking of their stature, speaking of their beauty, they're known again far and wide as this tall, beautiful people. Feared near and far, mighty and conquering from this land of plenty. Go back and tell these people who seemingly need nothing because they have everything they need because they're conquerors, they're beautiful, they have all of this rivers and and wealth and everything they could need, go tell them this message. 
He's sending them back with a message, not only for their own people, but for the world. It's a message to all of those other nations that you would find there in Genesis chapter 10 if you wanted to wade through all of those names. Most of them, again, Israel had never dealt with before. The people just kind of spread out, and these nations have built up from just a handful of people. All of the descendants of Ham are in the continent of Africa, for instance, from that one person. It just That's what happens over time. Israel hadn't dealt with most of these people, but this message is for them. It could have really been out to the Far East as well. It applies to all of them. And I think that's important, just as a quick aside before we move on. The Word of God that is here, that Isaiah is giving through, is serving as a mouthpiece of the Lord Himself, is for all nations and all the people of those nations. Todd gave an allusion to a nation this morning that few people have had contact with. The Word of God is for them as well. Just because they've never read it and never seen it, it doesn't mean that it doesn't apply to them. The Word of God is universal and eternal. It's true for every person in every time in every place. There's no way around that. That is the Word of God. It isn't something that you can decide that you're ready to follow when you want to. It's something that applies to you before you were born and continues to apply to you after you die. All of us, the people who had never heard of Israel in the days of Isaiah, were just as bound to the laws as the people of Judah was who saw them and dealt with them every day. God's word is universal. It's eternal. That's why we handle it carefully. That brings us to the second point, the reply of God, verses 3 through 6. This is God's reply. This is the message. Go back to this nation tall and smooth and say this to them. All you inhabitants of the world, you who dwell on the earth, when a signal is raised on the mountains, look. When a trumpet is blown, hear. For the Lord said to me, now this is Isaiah saying, look, when there's a warning, you need to listen. This is a warning. You know, you think of these signals on the mountains and trumpets being blown. War is coming. These are war signals. It's coming in the form of God Himself, bringing judgment. What does God say? Verse 4, I will quietly look from my dwelling. I love the word choice here. God is quietly looking on like clear heat in sunshine. Something that you can't see, but something that is felt. Like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest. The Lord is waiting, watching the rebellion of the nations before Him. Just as in our call to worship from Psalm 2 that we read, He who sits in the heavens... What does he do as he sees the nations that are conspiring against him? He laughs. He holds them in derision as he waits quietly, looking from his dwelling in the clear heat. There's a warning there at the end of chapter 2 of Psalms. Serve the Lord with fear. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. In this instance, perish in the way, as Isaiah tells us, is the picture of a harvest field, which is a very common image for Scripture. Verse 5, For before the harvest, 
When the blossom is over and the flower becomes a ripening grape, he cuts off the shoots with pruning hooks, and the spreading branches he lops off and clears the way, clears away. They shall all be left to the birds of prey of the mountains and to the beasts of the earth, and the birds of prey will summer on them, and the beasts of earth will winter on them. The harvester is the Lord in this case. The plants are those receiving His judgment. There is enough carnage as a result of this that the birds and the beasts are able to eat all year on them. That reminds me of another text in the book of Revelation. So turn with me to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation 19 has this interesting uh, juxtaposition here because you have, well, I'll just read it. I'm going to read starting at verse 11, and I want you to kind of get the imagery here that we're dealing with. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like the flame of fire, and on his head is many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. This is Jesus, just in case we missed that. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, pure and white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thighs the name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun. Notice all these imageries that are very similar to what we've been reading already. With a loud voice, and he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of the mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured with his false prophet who was in its presence, had done, by, had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped the image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burned with sulfur. And the rest, those nations, were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on his horse. And all the birds were gorged on their flesh. It's pretty graphic. We have that same picture here in Isaiah 18, the final battle waged against the enemies of God. The kings of the earth being slaughtered and fed to the birds. Notice the angel said before the even the battle even started, come gather and feast, the feast of God. The battle began and the outcome was, was sure. In case we somehow lose sight of the fact that God hates sin and hates the sinner... We should go back to passages like this. It's very common in our day to say things like God hates sin, but He doesn't hate the sinner. 
That doesn't make a whole lot of sense when you read Scripture. If that's true, why don't we find him using the Assyrian army to go out to all the nations and teach morality to them? Why didn't Assyria go to all these other nations and say, hey guys, this is how you should live? If it was just about hating sin and not the sinner, then why didn't he just go deal with their sin? Why did he use this pagan army to wipe them all out? Why is he planning to do that on the final battle with his enemies? If it's our sin that simply needed to be removed, if people aren't the problem, then we just need to eliminate the sin. If I'm not the issue, and my sin is really the issue, not me at all, then what do I need to do in order to get better? I just need to do better, try harder, become a better person. That's all I need to do. I just need an Assyrian army of sorts to come and teach me how to live right. The truth of Scripture over and over, however, is that God hates sin. And he hates the evildoer. Yet his mercy, he set aside a people for himself from the foundations of the world. And he made a plan to save them from the foundations of the world. And that's exactly what he did. We see that over and over again. That plan does not involve a simple cleansing of our record. Make sure that you understand that. It doesn't involve us him taking our sin, which was at 100, and then putting it at zero, and then us simply just starting over. It involved a death, which is punishment for sin. If you go all the way back to the garden, what was the punishment for sin? You eat of the tree, what shall you surely do? Die. Well, someone had to die. Rather than line all of us up one by one and take us all out, The Son of God came and heaped up every single one of our sins on Himself and He took the wrath of God on Himself. He suffered the, you will surely die for me and I get the, you will surely live. He satisfied God's wrath. He took out, He took, God took His hatred of sinners out on His Son because His Son came to be sin on our behalf. And through that, through that exchange, what am I now able to do? Be a better person? No, I am made a new creation. In Christ, I am born again. A new creation. The heart of stone has become a heart of flesh. Was this just a simple cleansing? Was this just a simple start over? No, it was a complete reset. The old was broken. The new is alive in Christ. This is the message that we have for the world, brothers and sisters. We don't have any other thing to say for them. Our message isn't be a better person. Our message, our message is you're a bad person and you need Jesus. I'm sure the Ethiopians in our passage today were okay people. I mean, they were a, a people tall and, and smooth and all of these things that were nice things said about them. Our message is not you're just be a better person, you know, like me, of course. Our message is you'll never be good enough. Only Jesus is good enough. Become a new person in Him. That brings me to the final point the future of the nations. Look at verse 7. So you have this whole timeline laid out. God judges the nations, 
the birds and the beasts feast on them all year. Verse 7, At that time, tribute will be brought to the Lord of hosts. And whose tribute going to be brought from? Who is this symbol of submission going to be brought from? From a people tall and smooth. From a people feared near and far. A nation mighty and conquering, whose land the rivers divide. They're going to bring that to Mount Zion, the place of the name of the Lord of hosts. Reminds me again, back in that chapter 2 of Isaiah, if you remember the picture there of all the nations coming and bringing tribute to Zion, this is just a, another picture of that. We have that same picture, all these defeated nations coming to their creator in submission. And they can come to one of two ways. They can come willingly. They can come as those who God has changed, who has taken their heart of stone and made it into a heart of flesh, and they come willingly, and they bow before the Creator, who they acknowledge, or they will come against their will, but they will all come, every single one of them, and they will all bow. We know what the New Testament says about this. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every one of them. Which brings us back to the picture in Psalm chapter 2. What does it tell us to do? Serve the Lord. Kiss the Son. This idea of kissing the Son is a picture of submission. The Lord said to me, you are my Son. That's what it says in Psalm 2. Today I have begotten you. That is the Son who is to be kissed. Who is the only begotten Son of the Lord? Jesus Christ, the Son who would be born of David's line, directly begotten by God, the Son is Jesus. Kiss the Son is an act of submission to Christ Himself. Blessed are those who take refuge in Him. So for us, while there is time, this is coming. One day, Christ is going to come, and all the nations are going to be before Him. And it's, it's not going to be pretty. Go back and read Revelation 19. It's not a pretty picture. He's not coming to hold hands and sing with them. He's coming to deliver His sword of judgment, which is His Word, which we're reading here from 18, and over and over again. He's coming to deliver that. And so while there is time, we continue to preach the Gospel message that Jesus, that One who's coming to put His enemies out before Him, Jesus became sin so that the sinner, you and I, might become the righteousness of God. When we faithfully preach that message, there will be people who will hate it. Absolutely, there will be people that will hate it. They, all, they always have. Just read the Gospels. Read the book of Acts. They rage. They plot in vain. They take counsel together and they plot against the Lord and His people. But there will be others who will hear the Gospel and who will want to hear more. And they'll come and they'll be in submission to the Son. And when they do, we have to be willing to take them in graciously, brothers and sisters, to take them in lovingly, to share that Gospel with them, to be truthful to it and be faithful to the gospel while we are here while there is still time the work of the church is to preach the gospel to preach christ and him crucified so in conclusion as we continue as we
continue to study and learn from God's Word, let us always remember that our time on earth is short. It's very short. Yet we have a message that is absolutely eternal and is absolutely true. So let us be faithful to offer the gospel. When people respond, let us love them as we've been called to do in Christ. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to you, we it's easy for us to see this picture of you on the cross, giving yourself for your people. But you are also that one who will come to judge the nations. And so, Lord, help us to make sure we are preaching both ends of that. Help us to make sure that when people hear the truth, they are hearing the whole truth. Help us to be ones who preach the whole counsel of your word. To be faithful to it, to live by it on our own, and to also preach that word. We pray that, Lord, if you that be your will, that you would send those to us who have heard your word and are coming to you in submission that we would be able to walk with them and and love them because the world doesn't. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.